This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Philippians 2, Philippians 2. I do know that Zach Moore preached on Philippians 2 last week, so don't worry. I'm not repeating or contradicting what he preached. Um, we'll be in a little bit later, long in the chapter. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I do want to express the um, thankfulness um, that I have for the studies, the uh, everything I've learned here at the seminary. I've only been here for three years. I haven't had the privilege of being here as long as some of you, and it's a privilege, right? Um, and in just those three short years, the amount of uh, just the, everything I've learned has been incredible, and I'm incredibly thankful to my professors and my classmates for everything that you have taught me. Um, Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Have you ever seen on uh, YouTube or Facebook those videos that are entitled, People Are Awesome? Have you ever seen those before? There's a, it's a compilation of videos of, of these people doing incredibly ridiculous things. Just you got one guy who's like doing backflips on a on a tightrope while breathing fire out of his mouth, you know. Like another guy, I saw this one where this guy has one arm and he's doing deadlifts, like with more weight than I could ever dream of lifting. And then you have this, I saw this one where this two-year-old is like flipping these nunchucks around his head like better than Bruce Lee. And uh, it's just all these people with really impressive skill and a lot of a lot of talent. And I can imagine. If I were to watch one of those videos and uh, really master, you know, in my mind, the technique and the strategy for doing a backflip on a tightrope while breathing fire out of my mouth, if I actually tried to attempt that that skill, I can guarantee you the only video I'd be making it on is like the best fails of 2018, not the people are awesome videos. Because no matter how good the example is set before you, if you don't have the ability or the talent to actually um, follow that example, imitation is impossible. We're in Philippians 2 today, and in this passage we see one of the most incredible examples we can ever read about. In verse 5 through 11, we read of the example of Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, took the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And you read that passage, and perhaps your first response is to exalt in the glory of Christ, His love, His sacrifice for us. But then you realize that right before that passage on His example, Paul tells the Philippians, have this mind in you. And then right after that example, in verse 12, he says, therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So one of the main points for Paul setting forth this example of Christ is to turn to us and say, your turn. You've seen the ultimate example of Christ, now you have to obey as Christ obeyed. And if you're like me, and you see the grandeur the perfection of Christ's example, I look at myself and I'm like, oh, no way. 
How am I supposed to do that? If we were to boil down the book of Philippians into a, into a phrase, we could say that the book of Philippians says that, that Christians can joyfully pursue Christ together even in the midst of opposition difficult and difficulty. But I, I, at times in my, in my walk with Christ, my attempts at obedience, my attempts at following the example of Christ are anything but joyful. Um, we experience times of discouragement. We experience times of frustration when we are uh, we are faced with the reality of our own sin. We're faced with the reality of our own failings. And we might become disillusioned by the unattainability of the example. Perhaps we're just exhausted. The the, the trials of life, the, the warfare within your own soul has brought discouragement into your life. I think even for us seminary students, um, one difficulty we can face in our walk with Christ is we can get so caught up in, you know, we read of legalism and antinomianism, and we want to make sure that we're not legalists, and we want to make sure we're not antinomians, and we almost feel like we're walking a tightrope toward Christ instead of pursuing Christ, you know, like, um, and we try to strike this balance between the two, you know, you, you don't want to be too holier than thou, you don't want to be, like, too good. You want to save a, you know, a couple struggles that you can transparently share in small groups, you know. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to look too casual in your Christian walk. You want you want people to think that you are that you're serious about your faith, and and so you, you're kind of balancing, and, and you want to make sure you're not going to one extreme or the other. But that's not how Scripture describes our walk with Christ. How it should be. So whatever wherever you are this morning, whether you're Christian walk is characterized by legalism, antinomianism, laziness, pride, selfishness, frustration, failure, pharisaical rule-keeping. I want to challenge you with a couple of short verses today. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. And I think these two short verses provide the fuel to following Christ. The fuel to following Christ. What I want to do this morning is, is Go through these two verses, phrase by phrase. Just talk about each one. Make sure we have a clear understanding of what the passage is saying. And then as we go, formulate an idea uh, that hopefully will help us grasp what Paul is saying in these, in these couple verses. And then once we get that clear idea of what the verses are talking about, I want to try to apply that to our lives this morning. So let's read the verses first of all. Again, this is immediately after the example of Christ. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the very first phrase um, that we're going to look at, work out your own salvation, obviously, this can be a confusing phrase to some. So we do need to ask, what does Paul mean by this phrase? What does it mean to work out your own salvation? And I think we would all be in agreement in, in this group here this morning. Paul is not saying that we are to work for our salvation, right? Elsewhere, all throughout Paul's writing, he makes that abundantly clear. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where by grace we have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
So we can say with confidence, Paul is not saying to work for your salvation. Also, we can say, Paul is not telling us to complete our salvation. In other words, God kind of started something, but it's up to you to, to bring it to completion. God is the one who will finish what he has started. Our salvation is secure. It's not achieved by our works. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying that we need to work it out. In other words, to flesh out the salvation that we have received. You have been saved. Now work it out. Or if you look in in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I think that's a similar idea that we see here in 2.12. As one commentator puts it, this phrase is dealing with how saved people live out their salvation. So, work out your own salvation in a way you could say is be like a Christian. Work, work it out. Flesh it out. But the follow-up question to that is, what is the work of the Christian? What are we to do? Some um, who, especially those that, 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 that have the mindset that any type of external effort is inherently legalistic, will try to shy away from the idea of working out your salvation to be anything other than a cognitive mindset or exercise. Uh, Julian Tavigian would be an example of this. Um, he, he speaks of grace in terms of God's acceptance and that our work is simply to remember that acceptance and good works just kind of pop out of it. Um, in, his, in, his, in commenting on Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says this, We've got work to do, but what exactly is it? Get better, try harder, pray more, get more involved in church, read the Bible longer. What precisely is Paul exhorting us to do? He goes on to explain, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works his work in you, which is the work already accomplished by Christ. Our hard work, therefore, means coming to a greater understanding of his work. So, Tavigian is saying, what's the work of the Christian? Getting to a greater understanding of what Christ has already done. Just think harder about the gospel, and, and that's all the work that you have to worry about, because Christ has already worked for you. Is that what the work of the Christian is? Well, I think in the immediate context, we can see that that is not the case. First of all, Philippians 2.12 equates working out your salvation with obedience. If you just look at the structure of the verse, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation. As you've always done this, keep doing it. So he's talking about obedience here. And again, uh, right after the example of Christ, where it talks about the obedience of Christ, he says, therefore, now you obey by working out your salvation. And then following verse 13, he gives specifics, which include doing all things without grumbling and disputing, being blameless and innocent, without blemish. So the context itself says that this is not just a cognitive exercise, but it's an active obedience to Christ. And obedience is specific action. It's not just... It's not just thinking harder, although you don't want to rule out the cognitive side. 
that we do need to dwell on the gospel, and we do need to rejoice in our acceptance in, in before God in Christ. But don't be afraid of describing the Christian life as a life of effort and work. I mean, the Bible describes the Christian life as a war, as a race. I mean, you'd have to ignore countless passages in Scripture that say otherwise to, in order to come to the conclusion that the only work the Christian is supposed to do is just think harder about the gospel. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, A Hole in Our Holiness, says, Christians work. They work to kill sin, and they work to live in the Spirit. They have rest in the gospel, but never rest in their battle against the flesh and the devil. The child of God has two great marks about him. He is known for his inner warfare and his inner peace. So, as we look through these verses and kind of develop our, our idea... I want to uh, say, first of all, we are to follow Christ by working hard. Does that strike you as legalistic? Does that strike you as somehow trampling on grace? I think we can see from this passage that clearly Paul is telling us to, uh, calling us to active obedience. Follow Christ by working hard in your obedience to Him. Christ is your example. You are to have this mind. You are to continue your obedience to Christ throughout your whole life. You're not earning or completing your salvation. You're simply living like a Christian by actively obeying. And this leads us to our next phrase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does fear and trembling mean? What is Paul referring to here? Well, this, this idea of fear and trembling is very common in the Old Testament. It has the idea of dread uh, very often in light of God's wrath or his holiness and in, and in light of the very preceding verses that talk about Jesus' exaltation and every knee bowing before him that response of reverence is, is expected and I think it's appropriate in the New Testament the phrase fear and trembling is much more rare, there's only about uh, four instances where you see this phrase fear and trembling but I think going through the different uh, instances of this phrase, all written by Paul, might give us some good insight as to what he means here by fear and trembling. So I want to look at these verses, and hopefully it'll come to a better understanding. The first uh, instance of this phrase is in 1 Corinthians 2, 2-4. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's saying in this verse, as he's describing his gospel-preaching ministry, his main goal was to make sure his listeners, when they heard his message, credited all the power and all the effectiveness to God and not the human messenger. He says that I was with you in weakness, fear, and trembling, so that when you heard my message, you said, that's God's power, that's God's spirit. I think we can conclude that fear and trembling is the characteristic of one who clearly understands that everything depends on the power of the spirit. And also in this, in this passage, it's juxtaposed with human weakness. So this realization that we are weak individuals. 
the next passage in the Second Corinthians seven fifteen. This is the passage where uh, Paul writes his confrontational letter to the Corinthians, and he's relieved to find that in response to his letter, the Corinthians repent genuinely. And at the end of that passage, he says, Our boasting before Titus has proved true, his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. This passage is notable because it links fear and trembling directly with obedience. It says, Your obedience was made known when you accepted him with fear and trembling. And in the light of it, it talking about genuine repentance, I think that this passage uh, shows that fear and trembling is a completely humbled and yielded stance toward another. It shows a genuineness of heart, a recognition of personal sinfulness, fear and trembling. The last one, Ephesians 6, 5, Paul exhorts bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. I think this passage is even uh, is even more notable because not only does it link it to obedience, but it also links it to how we should obey Christ. He exhorts bond servants, I want you to obey your masters the same way you would obey Christ. How? With fear and trembling and a sincere heart. The sense we get from this passage is that fear and trembling is completely humbled and yielded stance toward another. That, that, that you, you understand the seriousness of it, uh, that the gravity of the responsibility that you have been given, and you respond by obeying with fear and trembling. In summary, we can say that fear and trembling is a stance of human weakness, a stance of humility and vulnerability that's devoid of all pride. It's a stance of sincerity of heart. This is the one who is fervently working to follow Christ's example. It's not self-confident, arrogant, or flippant. It's a fervent work characterized by fear and trembling. So as we continue our idea, follow Christ by working hard with reverent humility. But now we go on to verse 13. Because another question arises. Yes, follow Christ by working hard with reverent humility. But how do we get to the place where we, we do obey Christ without fear and trembling? Is it just manufactured? Do we just put on this false sense of humility, this this vulnerable stance um, in order, while you're obeying? You know, I'm nothing, I'm, I'm no good as you obey Christ. Is it something manufactured or is it something that we that, that's deeper than that? The answer is in verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Why must we work hard with fear and trembling? Because God is transforming you. Verse 13 speaks of a glorious aspect of our salvation, our regeneration through Christ. And this is something I think that is often overlooked and ignored in our sanctification. We have a new nature through the Holy Spirit, in addition to being justified by faith. So we are new people in Christ. If total depravity is defined as a total inability to please God, I think regeneration transforms inability to ability. It transforms sinful desires to righteous desires. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. God is working in us 
both to will and to work. Every single righteous desire, every single righteous action that you have is a work of the Spirit, not of you. And that is why we should work hard with sincere and reverent humility, because you've contributed nothing to it. You cannot take a single ounce of credit for a good thought, a righteous action, a righteous desire. It's all of grace. Do you realize that every single member, all three members of the Trinity, are at work in your life? So, because of the Father's sovereign work in saving you, by the Son's saving work, through the Spirit's sanctifying work, I must work. And my work is dependent, completely dependent, on the work of God in me. And this is what God has created you for. Ephesians 2.10, right after talking about how we're saved by grace, through faith and that not of ourselves, he says in the very next verse, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul recognized that every good deed and desire in his life was the grace of God, and that motivated him not to sit back and just let God somehow work through him, but it motivated him and it, and it pushed him toward active, fervent, zealous work. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. The transforming grace of God, not only through His regeneration, but through His continual transformation, through His Spirit, as we look into His Word and are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, should push us toward active, fervent obedience. I think we, we have this idea, and we can fall into the temptation of hard work being antithetical to grace. Um, to kind of illustrate this, let's say that there's two men standing up here, right? This guy over here, we'll call him, we'll call him Chris, um, not Chris Armstrong, I'm not too sure. Um, and, and, and he, let's say that he gets saved later in life. He's lived a life of sin, he's lived a life of rebellion, um, just an awful lifestyle, and God has graciously saved him. He's rough around the edges, he's still got a lot of problems, but he's been gloriously saved through Christ. We look at that and we say, what a picture of grace. Absolutely. He is a picture of God's saving grace. But then let's say this, this guy over here, we'll call him John. He's been saved since he was young. And he's faithfully serving his wife, his children. He's involved in his local church. He, his, his time in God's Word is fervent. His, he, he's, a, he's a prayer warrior. Do we look at that guy and just as readily say, what a picture of grace? If you were to put both men up here, you'd probably look toward the guy that was saved later, right? That still has all the problems. And say, that's great. But the man that's lived a life of obedience? Yeah, I guess. Right? God's grace is seen most clearly in our obedience. 
because his obedience, our obedience, is his, not us. We often like to describe God's grace as uh, scandalous or risky or unsafe. I don't know if you've heard those terms to describe grace. Promiscuous, even. But I don't think we should think of God's grace in that way. If God had, in fact, accepted us without transforming us, then His grace really would be promiscuous and scandalous. If He had justified us without guaranteeing our progressive growth in Christ-likeness, then His grace would definitely be risky or unsafe. But that wasn't His salvific plan. He accepted us in Christ and transformed us through Christ. Perhaps it would be better to describe, describe God's grace as transformative, cleansing, corrective, enabling. This is the work of the Spirit in your heart. And if the reality that the God of the universe has given you a new nature, has, is continuing to transform you through His Spirit, by His Word, if that does not produce a healthy fear and trembling, I don't know what will. As we continue, we've seen follow Christ by working hard with reverent humility because God is transforming you. And finally, what's the end goal of all this? Why do we toil and strive? Why do we fear and tremble? Why has God transformed us and continues to transform us? We see that in the very final phrase. He works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. All of this is for His glory. God is pleased by your act of obedience because He's the one producing those good works in you. He is glorified when He sees the fruit of the Spirit in your life because it points to the incredible life-giving power of His salvation. It magnifies His character because it proves that God doesn't just save people and leave them alone, but He saves people and makes them new creatures who walk in newness of life. So that's Philippians 2, 12-13. I think we can see from this passage that we are to follow Christ by working hard with reverent humility because God is transforming you for His pleasure and glory. Or, if we were to rearrange it to start with the inward motivation and the empowering, uh, the empowering force toward the outward action, we could arrange it and say it this way. For His own pleasure and glory, God is transforming you. So, with an attitude of reverent humility, get to work. Philippians 2.12 tells us that following the example of Christ is possible if we're doing the right thing, work out your own salvation with the right disposition, with fear and trembling, from the right source, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work, and for the right reason, for His good pleasure. And I think if you're discouraged or frustrated or struggling in your Christian walk, I would encourage you to look at those different aspects and see if there's a breakdown in one of those areas. See if you're failing in one of those areas. And it might expose where the problem lies. So, let's walk through this and examine our own hearts to see how are we doing in light of this passage in, in Philippians 2, 12-13. Let's start with the motivation. 
what's your motivation for obeying Christ, for following his ways? Is it personal self-glory? Do you memorize scripture and serve in church and read your Bible and evangelize out of a desire to bring attention and glory to yourself? Have you ever thought, like, you know, I really should kind of do one-on-one discipleship with someone because, honestly, I kind of want to be known as a disciple maker. You know, I, I, wanna, I want people in my church to be like that guy. He's, he is a spiritual disciple maker. And we pursue Christ-likeness out of self-glory. Is your motivation self-fulfillment? Do you say no to pornography and teach in Sunday school and do Bible studies and serve your wife? simply because it makes you feel good. And you don't care for the feeling when you disobey God. Self-glory and self-fulfillment is not why God saved you and transformed you. He did it to magnify His grace and love. He did it to draw attention to who He is, not to who you are. If you obey Christ, out of a desire for self-glory or self-fulfillment, expect to be discouraged and frustrated because God resists the proud. It gives grace to the humble. What's your motivation? What's your source? It's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Faithful obedience to the Christ- in the Christian life, I think, is, is largely dependent on an accurate view and understanding of your salvation. Do you understand the nature of your regeneration? Do you understand the means of your continued transformation? As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, Beholding uh, with unveiled face the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you are not personally convinced that every single righteous deed and thought and desire is a work of God and not you, then you will not desperately and dependently run to His Word to be fed with His truth. You will not cry out to God in prayer for strength and wisdom because you don't clearly see Him as the one and only source. You depend on your own reservoir of theological knowledge. You depend on all of the verses you might have memorized in, in, in Sunday school and in church. And, and, and somehow think that if I, I, I have the ability in and of myself to obey, and you neglect the means of grace. Because honestly, you don't see them as only means. What is your source? What's your disposition? Is it fear and trembling? Or is it self-confidence and arrogance? Is it reverent humility? Or is it a casualness? Or, you know, it's kind of a carelessness. If you aren't consumed with God's glory and aren't dependent on God's work in your heart, your life will be characterized by either arrogance, arrogance or carelessness. Or both. Perhaps your life is characterized by diligence and good works, but your arrogant and proud disposition betrays the fact that your works are neither sourced in the power of God or motivated by the glory of God. 
And if it hasn't happened already, it won't be long before you stumble and fall, and the truth of your hypocrisy will be clear. You can't manufacture this fear and trembling. It can only come from a clear realization of God's transforming work in you, a dependence on that, and a sincere desire for His glory. Finally, what are you doing? God's gracious work in you. Is it leading you just to this passive let go and let God mindset? Titus 2, 11-14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing or training us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Don't be afraid of effort. Don't be afraid of working. Don't be afraid of obedience. That's why God saved you. And if you are consumed with God's glory and you're convinced of His regenerative work within you, and you're humble before Him in light of those realities, you don't have to worry about legalism. Because legalism by nature is someone who's out of his working to obey Christ out of a motivation to glorify self, dependent on your own strength, and with a spirit of arrogant pride. But if you obey Christ out of a motivation to glorify Him, dependent on His grace alone, with a spirit of reverent humility, you don't have to worry about that. You can just focus on fervently pursuing Him with all of your energy that He has given you. You can go all out. You don't have to be balancing this tightrope. You know, okay, what am I doing? You know, am I legalistic or am I antinomian? You can have a full sprint toward Christ because you're consumed with His glory, convinced of His regeneration, and humbly dependent on His power, resulting in hard, fervent work. And that's what following Christ is. That's the fuel. As we look at Christ's example, and we think of how unattainable it might be, sometimes it's helpful to kind of see a human example of what following Christ is, a human example of what taking Philippians 2, 12-13 looks like in real life. And actually, Paul does that for us. Philippians 2 has the example of Christ he exhorts the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what does that look like? What does that look like to someone who has the right motivation, the right source, the right disposition, and fervently obeying God as a result? What does that look like? Look in chapter 3 and read of Paul's example. I'm going to read through these verses, and as I read, I want you to see if you can pick up some of those elements that we've talked about. He says, we'll start in verse 2, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if any, anything uh, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Did you see the consuming passion for God's glory? Did you see the, the, uh, the mind that was convinced that all of his righteousness was from Christ and not him? Did you see the attitude of reverent humility? And did you see his all-out strength to follow Christ? That's what obeying Christ looks like. This is what following his example looks like. Praise the Lord that he's not only given us clear examples, but he has also transformed us, given us his spirit, that has given us the ability to obey. And I hope this morning, as we look at this passage, you saw a clear picture of what obedience to Christ looks like. And I hope that as if you are struggling with your walk with God, that you're able to pinpoint the areas that you might be neglecting. Check your motivation. Check the source. Check your disposition. And I think that you're checking your disposition will tell a little bit about where you, your source is and what your motivation is. And then finally, check to see what you're doing. Are you actively obeying? Are you following His Word? For His own pleasure and glory, God is transforming us. So, with an attitude of reverent humility, let's get to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for saving us. And thank You for not just leaving us alone, but giving us Your Spirit and transforming us and, and progressively making us more into the image of Your Son. Help us, Lord, as we seek in our own imperfection, the same to follow you and to obey you. Help us to stay dependent on your spirit, dependent on your grace, resulting in a clear and trembling. And also resulting in a servant and a Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.